nothing beats heading out for a riding adventure with a group of good friends. And I guess the next best thing to that is joining a group and making new friends. I mean, what better way to meet like-minded people, especially motorcyclists, because, well, you know what they're like. You enjoy the benefits of of meeting some new people with that. And as well, you got somebody to watch your back while you watch theirs. It's sort of a win-win situation. But there are some things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to group riding. And if you're just, if you've been stuck in the wintertime, it's up till now and you're just sort of breaking out of the snow and you're getting ready to ride, it's time to refresh those things. Some are about safety, some are about personal preparation, uh, a little on buddy etiquette as well. And to talk about this, we're heading all the way down to Baja, Mexico to talk with Clinton Smout. When I caught up with Clinton, he was about halfway through a commercial group ride that he rides sweep for. And and it was just a day after what he called the trail from hell. The worst day that he's had doing this. All that coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manikin, Ted Simon, Austin Vince, Simon Pavey, Bill Dragoo, Helga Pedersen, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Thomas, Grant Johnson, Graham Jarvis, Elspeth Bay, Quentin Smout, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, CyclePump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Clinton, where are you right now? I am in a fancy resort in Baja, Mexico, so I apologize if there's a little background noise. There's some people in the pool, there's some people playing pool, and I'm very close to a fishing village. There's lots of noise, so I apologize. Right, right. no, it's okay. So what are you doing there? Um, I'm the sweep rider yet again for an adventure guide. What are you, partway through now? Yeah, we're on day five, and we've got three days to go. Right, and what is this? It's uh, the best of Baja-type tours. So all of the participants were from Canada, Ontario. We shipped bikes by transport truck to Yuma, Arizona, and then everybody flew into Yuma, collect the bikes, and then we went to the border. And then the organizer, Clint, He um, is working in conjunction with a Mexican company that will smooth things at the border for you because they're obviously they're very fluent in Spanish Mm -hmm. and the way the border works, which I'd love to talk about. That was fascinating for me because it wasn't like going into Arizona, for instance. (laughs) Well, what do you mean? Talk about that. That so, So what happened? Well, I think people that are adventure tours who come from North America, we're used to a certain 
let's say, efficiency <laughs> in the way things work at a border or an airport. And coming into many countries that might not have the economic status that we enjoy. For instance, coming into Mexico, there was 16 of us, and it took two hours to get through the border process. Mm. So if, if you go in frustrated because it isn't the way that you're used to doing it, or if you have the attitude of, where's the McDonald's? What do you mean there's not a McDonald's here? <laughs> You're probably not going to enjoy adventure touring in different countries. So we had to, the policia on the Mexican side shepherded us all into one parking lot. Then we each had to show our ownership for our vehicles, didn't care about the insurance. And then the gentleman with a flashlight looks down your frame to ensure the VIN number is what's on your ownership. Then we troop off only four at a time to line up on one side of this road and you wait in line and a stern woman, stern looking woman, no smiling, uh, she goes through all the paperwork, passport, etc., and then when she's happy, she stamps a big white piece of paper that I filled out. You know, where are you from, your home address, the vehicle, how long you're staying. Then with that stamped paper, you leave that building, cross the street, go to another building and line up. Someone else reviews the white piece of paper, stamps it, then gives it back to you. And you have to go to yet a third location. So if you didn't speak Spanish, it would be tough. So that was really helpful that this other company, Trip Planners, they smoothed the way and they directed traffic for us. Hmm. So armed with the two stamps, you then go to the person who stamps your passport. And then you're in Baja. Oh, this doesn't seem too bad. Two hours for no. 16 people? That's not too bad. Exactly. I didn't think it was at all, but... I kind of had that chat that I just mentioned to you with a couple of participants that are saying, oh my God, it's so hot. Why don't they put the three stamps with the first woman? <laughs> but what Rene Cormier said to us when we went to Africa, I was lucky enough to go on the trip there with Rene. He says, you know, you're not in Kansas. This is a different world. We passed into Botswana and it was the exact same thing. Three huts down the road, different people, but those are people with government jobs. They're making a living and there's not a lot of making a living in many countries that aren't as well off as ours. Mm -hmm. So you got to just, you know, when in Rome, wait in line and smile. Yeah. It's all part of the experience. Yeah. And if you maintain this, where's the McDonald's attitude, you might as well stay home. You're not going to enjoy your trip. Yeah. Yeah, so where was the McDonald's at the border anyway? There's none. <laughs> I haven't seen McDonald's in Mexico yet. So, okay, so, that, you, so I interrupted you there to, to get you to talk about the border. Yeah. So, so, so you, you cross the border, then what happens on this trip? Well, then the, the Mexican staff say, okay, the first place is 280 kilometers away. We're going to go to Hotel Cortez in San Felipe which is a famous place to go if you're a Baja racer, either in a car, or truck, motorcycle. So everywhere you go, there are stickers from all the race teams and manufacturers. 
over all the windows and doors. Yeah, that's neat. And some of those stickers are 50, 60 years old. The races oh, have been wow. going on. It's, it's part of the culture down here, and it's a very big part of the economy, racing. Right. So, so they, they're, they're totally into bikes. You're not going to get Big people time. looking at bikes and the, and you know, what down their nose sort of thing. Absolutely not. And as in most countries that don't have the economic power, the U S or Canada, a motorcycle is basic transportation. Like you and I ride because we love to, not because that's the only vehicle that's the best economy of transportation for us. Yeah. But I'm sure you've seen pictures, uh, just because it only has one set of passenger pegs and room for two people, that means nothing. <laughs> for for how much you can put on a bike, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and of course, the climate has something to do with it because, I mean, here where I am, I'm not going to be able to ride a motorcycle in the wintertime. Matter of fact, I can't ride a motorcycle today. No. Well, when I tried before the trip, I think I was mentioning I bought a brand new bike in the crate, put it together, I think three days before the truck was leaving to come to Arizona and then I flew. So I thought, well, at least I got to test ride it a little bit. It's brand new. I crashed twice in my snowy driveway at work. <laughs> so I thought, okay, just put it on the truck. <laughs> yeah, you need some studs in the, in the tires for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I I'm finding that I used to really hate dropping the bike and now I just hate picking it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the part that bugs me the most. So you're yeah. so you're doing the, the best of Baja, and what does that include? If you had some amazing riding so far? Oh, unbelievable. The roads themselves, especially, um, I, I was, my son, for instance, said, Mexico has mountains? Absolutely. So a lot of roads that curve around the ocean line or mountain lines are very, very hilly, very curvy. So fantastic paved roads. Although if you compare it to an interstate or a highway in Canada, it might not be up to their standards. You know, mm. there's a little more pothole. you got to keep your eyes open. And the physical lane is narrower. It'll be only nine feet wide. So if there's a transport truck coming north, you're going south on your bike. I'd highly advise you move over as far right as you can. And there's very seldom a paved or even a sh soft shoulder. If you go off, you're probably going to, your speed will be impeded by rocks and cactus. Hmm. So you don't want to go off the road here. Right. But it's good fun. And you, and you had one, one trail that was particularly difficult. The trail from hell, I'd like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> the trail to hell was leading you to uh, heaven though, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was to a fantastic mission that was built in 1762. I made some notes because I thought, you're going to ask me, Jim. <laughs> but it's called the Mission de San Francisco de Borja. So it's halfway down the Baja Peninsula. It's kind of in the middle. So you go from a paved road into a hard off-road. And we did this 100-kilometer gravel trail uh, in 2015, the last time I was here, different group of riders, I don't remember it being that hard. We were all on big bikes. There might have been a couple tip-overs, but it wasn't that ugly. But since then, a hurricane through and destroyed it. So to get to the mission, uh, it was very arduous. Mm. Uh, incredibly tough rock 
trail. And I was thinking about it, maybe the heavy rains that came with the hurricane, if there was any incline, it washed the loose material sand down into the bottom of the gullies and there was flat plains that where the trail used to be, it was underneath a lot of the silt. I don't know if you've ridden silt, Jim, but it was the toughest sand I've ever been in. I, I don't know what you, I'm not sure what you describe. I don't think I've ridden the silt that you're talking about. Like I'm thinking of like, like, you know, sand around here where we are. You're making it sound like it's something completely different. It really was. I wish I should. Oh, there is videos I can send you. I'm not sure if we can attach that, but. The uh, it was more of a flower consistency. Oh. So normally, when when I ride sand, I'm up on the pegs, and I'm using the throttle to keep my front tire up, so I can just cruise on the top surface or a couple inches. There was no doing that. The bike would turn left or right of its own free will, and peg steering sometimes worked. And a lot of momentum, I'm talking third year, with it half revved up, really helped. And you could do it. But most of the participants were too intimidated by sand to give it that much momentum and speed. So there was an incredible amount of crashing. Oh, no. So what does that look like? Well, picking up a bike that's fallen on a gravel road is one thing. But when you go to pick it up in the deep sand, the front tire moves. So it takes so much more energy. Plus, everybody was smart enough to wear really good gear. And this is an extremely hot climate, even like it's going to get a lot hotter in the summer. But it was over 30 degrees the day we did it a few days ago. So now you pretty well have to wait for another rider to put their bike in the kickstand and hope it doesn't fall over. Luckily, there's lots of rocks to find. Then they would come over and you would lift it together. Or sometimes three riders would lift a bike. Mm. And then the poor person whose bike it was would get back on, drive another 15 feet, crash again. Oh, man. And And you get 100 kilometers of this? It took us till 1130 at night and we went in at noon to get everybody out. And they were all troopers. Nobody left anybody behind. So there's videos of three people pushing and walking with with their engine revving, walking beside it using the clutch and two people pulling. And that's the only way they could get across. And where I teach sand... It's 40 yards of sand. Uh, this was over a mile long stretches. And I thought to myself, I'm just going to go right at the edge of the trail. There was no edge of trail. It was silt from side to side. And then it's down canyon walls. Yeah, it was the toughest sand I've ever ridden. Is that right? So, and is this place used or is it just a sort of a dead end and you turn around and come back out? No, I, we, we saw one person on a burrow and no vehicles at all that I saw. Now, the people that live in the mission have an old truck. That is one tough truck, but they, <laughs> they don't go in and out. So it's, you know, to get supplies at once every six weeks type of thing. Uh, so, but there is somebody there, so that they're having to come yes. in. How many times did the donkey fall down? 
I never saw it fall. It was fantastic. <laughs> Says I something, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I would have traded that guy a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, for his donkey. And I bet his clutch didn't burn out on the donkey either. No, it could stop and eat some grass. It was awesome. Wow. That sounds like quite the adventure. And, and of course, that's the type of thing where you're sweating it, stressing it. Everybody is completely spent. But afterwards, it was the most amazing thing ever. It was the post discussion and sharing of videos and photos. I never even touched my phone. I was just too exhausted and too concerned with getting people through it. So I personally didn't take any videos, but there's tons of them. And they're unbelievable. The roost coming off of these big bikes powering through the sand. And that's where I was an idiot. When they asked me, would I go to Baja again? They said it's 70% pavement, 30% gravel. And I'd been here in 2015. That 30% was different this year. (laughs) So I left the stock tires on my bike which, as everybody knows, you buy a stock adventure bike, it's pretty well a street tire. I think it's called an 8020. Mm-hmm. It was a little more exciting in the soft sand. You know, the, the photos you, you, that you sent me, I, I looked at your bike and thought, that looks like street tires you're running on that bike. What are you yeah. doing? Yep. <laughs> wow. Chief instructor. Yeah. Wow, so it might have been a little bit of an ego decision that I thought, you know, well, It'll be tough, but I could do it. Right. And it was tough. And I did do it, but with way too much throttle. The old fuel fuel economy wasn't too good (laughs) in there. because It was not on the rev limiter, but close to get up some of the sandy hills because I had no traction. It was pure momentum. uh, Get out of the way. I'm coming through type launches. Now, you guys aren't camping. You're staying at hotels, correct? Oh, thank God. We <laughs> thought we were going to have to camp that night. Well, that's what I'm thinking because you're you're out on this thing. And at 11 o'clock at night, obviously, you've completely blown the schedule here. And you're not really prepared. You're certainly not prepared for an no. overnight or it'll be cold at night. Yeah, I think as a good adventure rider, I had a backpack with three spare bottles of water. You know, 500 mil bottle. Mm-hmm. My camel back was full before I went in. We carried really good tools. Uh, We had spare tubes, everything. We thought we had it covered. Uh, And we also had satellite phones Mm. because there's no cell signal in most of this part where we're riding. And uh, we drank all of my water. I was giving it to other people, everybody else. We had zero water left when we got out because of the exertion of energy and the heat. But what compounded it in the desert, uh, coyotes are pretty furry for nighttime because it dropped, it went from 30 degrees in the day to 10 degrees at night. Yeah. And when you're sweating and wet, nobody brought like sweaters. We all had airflow gear. So it's got armor, but my suit, if you hold it up to the light, you can see through it. Right. So once you sweat and then the temperature drops, I was freezing. I was shaking by the time we got to the hotel. Mm. But it was fun. Yeah. No. (laughs) Now, you know, when I look back at it, there was great moments. And that to me is adventure riding. Yeah. Overcoming the obstacles, uh, helping the other people out. I did stuff I've never done before. Um, This one gentleman 
absolute trooper, but probably the least experienced on a big, big bike in those conditions. So he estimates he fell 24 times. And when I left him, I rode him and his bike to the mission. Then I went back for my bike and they continued on after the mission. When I went back, got my bike, and there was one of the guys actually volunteered to be security. He thought it was crazy that I just left my bike on the side of the trail. But I thought, what kind of a nut would come in here to steal something? <laughs> Plus, I had the key. But anyway, um, Matt and I then went back towards the mission, and uh, there was the whole group. They hadn't gotten very far because the conditions worsened with sand. It was starting to get dark. Uh, one of the gentlemen, Clint, hit a big rock, smoked the front wheel, and it's tubeless. So we tore it apart. I actually broke a rock in half. There's a video of me. I look like a caveman. As you're trying, trying to straighten it. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't work. So we thought, tack with it. We'll just put a tube in it. So we put a tube in it and got him out almost to the road. That, that's when my kind of emotional strength was gone. I was done uh, physically, but mentally, I could see the odd car go by on a highway. And I thought, thank God we're almost here. We had about two kilometers left. That took an hour and a half to get everybody to the pavement. Mm, wow. So... Um, when people were just exhausted and they couldn't do it and we'd already fried one clutch, I said, you know what, folks, I'll happily ride your bike. Clint did as well. And another gentleman, Andre, was a big help walking other people's bikes out. But a fatigue level, this is where I did all my steps. I would ride people's bike out and I think, oh my God, I got to walk back and get my bike. So obviously then, there's no chase truck. I uh, know not in there. Mm -hmm. It was at the hotel wondering where we were, <laughs> but they did come and get one of the bikes with a fried clutch Honda, uh, Africa twin, which we were able to, it just got so hot. You could have cooked a steak on it. We would have, if we'd had any steaks, <laughs> but uh, with some adjustment and I topped the oil up, it was perfect. The gentleman's riding it today. It just got so hot. Oh, wow. Lucky. But sadly, Clint's bike, we fried the clutch. So after I'd finally got the last gentleman's bike up onto the road uh, and up a really sandy hill, it was just hell to get it out of there, all the bikes. But I thought, oh, thank God, that's the last bike. I just have to walk back and get my bike. And then I see Clint looking very depressed. Those buddy, my clutch is gone. So we had to push it through the sand to the base of the hill. Then I hooked up my, oh, I'm going to kiss those green chilies toe strap people that you promote. <laughs> right. I love that thing. We used it so much on this trip. So we didn't hook it up to a bike. Four of us at, on the, at the top of the hill literally pulled this bike with the fried clutch up onto the pavement. And then I towed it uh, about 30 kilometers, 20 some odd miles back to the hotel. 
Now, is that by gun or you, do you guys have clutch plates with you or how do you do that? It was amazing. We were talking to a gentleman at the hotel the next morning. You know, I see a dirt bike shirt. So I'm just chit-chatting, you know, what are you riding? Blah, blah, blah. And I told him we had a fried clutch. And the gentleman was from a special light company, Cyclops Lights. <laughs> Cyclops Adventure Sports. That's him, yeah. Right. And he goes, uh, you need a leather boot lace. Thought, what? So what he's done before successfully, the clutch plates, when you stack them up, are a certain height, as you know. And what happens when you fry a clutch? You disintegrate some of the fiber on the friction plate. They're steel mated up against friction. and There's lots of each. And what he did before was take the clutch pack, take a leather, it has to be leather, it's got to be tough. You spiral the leather lace in a snail shape, round and round, put the clutch back together, put the oil back in, if you hadn't had it laid over on its side, and Bob's your uncle, off you go. And I could, I've never heard of this, but I thought, what a brilliant trick. So, well, yeah, it yeah. Ma- I mean, it makes sense, you know, theoretically, doesn't it? This is Daryl yeah. from, from Cyclops Adventure Sports you're talking about. And what you're doing is you're taking up that space that's now gone from your worn out clutch pack. The the yeah. uh, the friction material is all worn off. You're taking it back up. The only downside is you do have on the other ones that are worn out, metal on metal, which which doesn't create too much friction. Thing, you no, know. So it's that's a, what happened. But he said he put 3,000 miles on a big KTM race bike and he rode it hard with a leather boot lace wow, until he could get a new clutch. So that's a, I learned so many tricks on this trip. So did you, did you can, do that? We took it all apart. We had a, a leather boot lace ready to go, but the clutch plates weren't that bad. They're, the steel was burnt. Some of them were fried. But what we found is we simply changed it, put really good oil in it, and adjusted the free play. And Clint's back riding. He's out on it right now. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. So could part so, of it be that it heated up? And, and of course, when your clutch heats time. up, you lose the free, free play, and then it just starts slipping. Exactly. And sometimes when it cools down, you might get a little clutch out of it and be able to adjust it to get you home. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the case. We tried that. <laughs> but if you're if you are riding something like this and it does get really hot and you feel like your clutch is starting to slip, one of the things to do is check your free play, isn't it? Because yes, it's it likely is. it will be gone if it's heated yes. up that much. Exactly. And then stop. Cool. You're going to need to cool off anyway, and let the engine and the oil cool down. Right. And especially if you start smelling burnt clutch, you've got to stop. But changing the oil, you're saying changing the oil will make that much difference as well. Phenomenal. Especially in our type, most bikes, the clutch is running in the same oil that lubricates everything else. Yeah. So it's burnt from carbon, high heat, and it's got clutch material in it, the fiber. So it won't, it just doesn't work. Um, I've had dirt bikes, the clutch is gone. You just simply change the oil and you get most of the clutch back. Hmm. And in that case, it worked. That was really good to know because rather than abandon it, that uh, you may have some options there. You know, try changing the oil, ch- check your free play, that sort of thing. Yeah. And possibly you're able to, to ride out and keep going. But we had a lot of other repairs. Some of them we did 
in this hellish ride, a hundred kilometer or mile ride we did, um, the gentleman who dropped his BMW so, so many times, one time I got on with him on the back to ride out and I thought, holy crap, the wheel was turning left when the handlebars were turning right. So I had to loosen the front forks off and, you know, you put it, we did this with dirt bikes. You put it, the front wheel between your knees yeah. and straighten the steering. It was tweaked. Because the triple clamp came loose. It, well, they weren't loose, but by design, most bikes have enough or a little amount of torque on the forks because they're hollow. You don't want to tighten them up too much. But in a crash, it will move so the handlebars aren't straight with the way the wheel is pointing. Mm. We call it tweaked. So you loosen it off, straighten it up, tighten it up carefully. Right. And so at least you can steer. Yeah. So one of the times I picked it up, I noticed, oh my God, the crash bar on the left engine had bent in from so many repeated falls on rocks. It actually punctured or made a little crack in the valve cover. So it was seeping oil all over my left boot and the gentleman's pants and boot. But I kept checking the oil. There was lots left. Because at that point, I was pretty well done. I wasn't doing a valve cover <laughs> JB weld repair in the sand at 1130 at night. What kind of bike is this? Is it a BMW uh, with a headset? Yeah, yeah, an R1200 with the head sticking up. I see. And I think over the years, I've repaired five valve covers with JB Weld. It works perfectly. But I wasn't doing it that night. I did it the next morning. Mm. Piece and, of cake. Yeah, and with the JB Weld, what, you're, you're spraying some sort of cleaner on it and then just applying the, yeah. the weld? we had a can of contact cleaner. I took the valve cover off, engine guard off, valve cover off, cleaned it, and then I used a file to make more, a little bit more of a V groove in the crack. It wasn't oh, a hole, it was a crack. Mm -hmm. And that just gives you a bit more purchase for the JB Weld. Gives it something to stick to, because otherwise it's trying yeah. to stick to that, that polished surface. Right. And then we let it sit for, I don't know, five hours or so. I reassembled it, topped up the oil, fired it up. I redid his front end because I didn't do a great job that night. And I test rode it just to make sure it was safe before the customer rode it. And he's out on it now. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the JB Weld will hold. I should get shares in that company, Jim. <laughs> I, I sell tons of that to my customers. Oh, you can't go riding without this. You got to take this. The JB Weld. <laughs> I know. It is amazing yeah. stuff. I, I love I always have some as love well. It. Whether it be uh, in, in the Jeep or whether it's on my bike, I always have some. I try to anyway. But you know, I, I, I sort of mi I missed something there, Clinton, that you were saying because I thought you said you were the sweep rider, but it sounds more like more like you were a mechanic fixing and uh, emergency <laughs> for <laughs> person, yeah, emotional support worker. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure people have been there, listeners that have crashed. I don't care how good a rider are, your self confidence crashes with you when you tip over. Well, yeah, especially and, when it's more than once, isn't it? I mean, I mean, oh. uh, you know, for the average rider anyway, like when, when you fall, you feel bad yeah. and then you fall again, you feel worse. Not to mention you physically get worn out by picking the bike up. Most of us do. Yeah. But um, yeah, you start to question everything you're doing. And yeah, exactly. Well, this gentleman in particular, Sev is his name. 
he said to me later, you know, I, I thought of selling my bike and getting out of it. It's just too much. I said, no, it was, it was too much of a trail for all of us. But don't sell your bike. And the ride after that was a really twisty mountain. It's paved road. Mm-hmm. We got him back. He's going to keep his bike. Oh, that's good. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's- I jokingly said, you know what? 5,000. I'll give you 5,000. <laughs> It's got a hole in the engine. <laughs> That's right. It's been abused. <laughs> yeah. So, but the psychology of adventure riding, sometimes it's harder than when we ride on the street because you don't know what's in, around the next corner. And then you get there and you think, oh, my God, there's more sand. This trail's rockier than the last one that I crashed four times on. So it takes a lot of guts and kind of self-motivation to perk yourself back up and keep on going. And that's why it was fantastic having the group that we had because they supported each other physically and emotionally. No, we can do this. Come on, we got to get out of here. Three people to a bike dragging it out. It was amazing to see. And it's difficult. What I often find with that sort of thing is that it's that thing of where you work so hard to get in somewhere, you you feel like if I have to turn around and go through everything that I've went through, and I know what I went through already, and I know I've even chewed it up more, do I go back or do I keep going and hope that this thing actually gets better, which it seems to rarely do? Yeah, well, I was trying to psych myself up saying, well, it can't be as bad as that. Keep going, Glenn. Come on. <laughs> you did this in 2015. And then the other voice in my head would say, you moron, we should have turned the whole group back (laughs) five hours ago. What are you doing here? But it's one of those things that I think if you're trapped in an elevator with people, your lifelong friends, or if you go to war with people, you're tight with them. So the camaraderie has just been awesome. Just a quick break while I I tell you about some things, but we got a lot more fun and interesting things coming up with Clinton. Stay with us. I have a device on my handlebar that's literally changed the way I ride. It's the Atlas Throttle Lock. Now, this little beauty is a marvel of engineering. It's very small, it's metal. It's got two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. And when you press them, you feel the quality. And because they have such a positive feel, you know exactly what you're doing. There's no need to look at it. The feel tells you. Once it's engaged, you can adjust your throttle position, either up or down, just by twisting the throttle, increase the speed, slow down, and just let go or relax. It'll hold that speed there. Now, it sounds simple, but what it changes for the rider is huge. The relief of being able to just relax your grip even slightly on your throttle hand is incredible. Then next comes the wrist and the forearm, even your shoulder relaxes. The difference is so great, I find, that I use the Atlas Throttle Lock more than any other throttle lock I've, I've ever tried. It changes the way you ride because it makes you feel good, reduces fatigue. Another great thing is that it's easy to switch from one bike to another. It's literally one screw that you undo and you just switch it over from one bike to the next. The Throttle Lock was invented by two riders just like you david and heidi winters while they were doing their round the world trip on their ktm they came up with this idea and i think nothing is better than dealing with companies that are owned and operated by motorcyclists like us the website is atlasthrottlelock.com anytime you're dealing with them throw in there that you heard them here on adventure rider radio atlasthrottlelock.com 
Hex Innovate is the inventor of the GS911. Now, in case you're not aware of the GS911, it's a diagnostic tool that has changed the lives of many BMW owners. The GS911 allows you to sort of see inside your computer system that runs your BMW motorcycle, check fault codes, help diagnose problems, and of course, in doing so, can save you an expensive trip to the dealership. But more importantly, in my mind, it gives you some peace of mind while you're riding your bike. This GS911 is an incredibly powerful tool that helps you diagnose a problem and be on your way again. For example, one story I'd heard was somebody had hit a rock or a rock had flown up and hit the switch on the side stand. They couldn't figure out why the bike wouldn't work. They put the GS911 on. It immediately gave them the fault, told them what it was. They managed to bypass it and they're off again. I mean, this, this is huge for our modern bikes. Now, the person behind all this is an avid motorcyclist, just like you and I. And I think this is a huge bonus of dealing with, with companies that are driven by the passion of riding motorcycles. Hex Innovate also makes the EasyCan Accessory Manager. Now, this accessory manager is a device that plugs into your computer on your motorcycle. Very simple to plug in. And then it allows you to add accessories to it without any potential of messing up the systems. Because these new bikes have this CAN bus system in it that you just cannot mess with. And it doesn't have power where you think there'll be power at switches and things like that. So it's quite difficult to add accessories. And what people often do is start adding accessories with external switches and then find their bike is dead the next time they go to ride it because something was left on. This eliminates all that. Even the OEMs, the manufacturers of motorcycles, love the EasyCan system because it allows a rider to add some accessories, which they know you're going to do without messing up the computer that runs the bike. Hexinnovate.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. Adventure bikes are heavy by nature. We all know that. And serious riders stand up when the going gets tough to better control that heavy adventure bike. What is often missed here is that a wider than stock foot peg will give you added leverage to help better control the heavy bike. Not to mention feel much better when you're sitting, on, just resting your feet on them, going down the road. But just wider doesn't cut it. They need to be designed properly. And that's a tough thing to do because as you add width to a foot peg, you have the potential, if it's not done correctly, to mess up the geometry of the way your feet access the brake and the shifter. And that's going to make all the difference in the way this thing performs. On top of that, they need to be built incredibly tough because not only do they take the beating from your weight, from your shifting your weight and jumping up and down on them, but because they're down there where the rocks and debris are, they can take some serious hits. In fact, if you look at your bike next time you drop it, stand it up, you'll see that usually the foot peg is one of the main contact points, rocks, mud, dirt, whatever it falls on. So think about that. And just how will you ride out if you break one of those foot pegs off? It's a nightmare scenario. IMS Products makes the ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs specifically for large adventure motorcycles. These are wide, large foot pegs made out of 17.4 cast certified stainless steel. They also use a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they come with a lifetime warranty. And because IMS has been around since 1976, they have the expertise and know-how to build super tough parts that racers use the same way they build the adventure motorcycle foot pegs for us. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. And 
riding with a group is what we're here to talk about today is doing exactly yes, what you're yeah, talking sorry. about. And we're, I've been and we're, glad being no, on. No, no, I, I wanted to hear about this. And it, it's so germane to what we're talking about anyway, because we're talking about yeah. riding with a group and, and things too, because it is the time of year for anyone who has been stuck in a, in a snowy area where you haven't been riding and come spring, you want to get out there and ride. And quite often what we do is we like to team up with other people. And there's a lot of people putting on group rides, you know, they'll advertise a group ride, or maybe you'll hear about it through a, a friend or someone, you know, but just because somebody sets up a group ride doesn't mean that they understand the dynamics of riding with a group because there's a lot to it as you would know better than, than most anybody because you're riding sweep and you're seeing all this. So that's what we're here to talk about today is some of that, that, awesome. that the odd person could learn from the things that you know and apply it. They don't have to be organizing a trip themselves. You could just be riding with someone else and it sort of gives you some information that you could pass along, say, hey, maybe we could do this. Or it may also prompt you to say, maybe this isn't for me. You know, like maybe uh, maybe this is my time to to go and uh, and split off and, exactly. and do my own thing. Yeah, exactly. What did um, you do? Did you walk through the kitchen now all of a sudden? No, uh, some of the stuff. Hola. <laughs> some of the stuff, they're organizing things, but I'll try a silanzo, por favor. <laughs> I think, Jim, if I was here another few days, I'd be completely fluent in Spanish. No, you sound it. You no, sound Spanish to I'm me. I'm kidding. <laughs> so am yeah, I. Right. <laughs> I realized I said, como stai, to a, a gentleman serving me breakfast this morning. He goes, okay, uh, that's Italian for how are you? So, no, I better <laughs> speak. I'm going to stick to Anglese. <laughs> <laughs> right. All part of the fun. Well, that's great. So okay, so let's let's start off with um first of all like what are the um what are the things that we need to be mindful of if we're joining a group to ride? So if I just decide to you know go to a Facebook group or something and they're they're heading off for a ride, what should I be mindful of begin to begin with? Well, nothing will peeve off the majority of the group if they're suited up, sitting on their bikes, idling, especially in the heat, and you roll up late. And then say, uh, oh, I got to get gas before we go out on the ride. Mm. So a little bit of uh, preparedness. <laughs> Don't show up without a full tank. And if they say, you know what, kickstands up at 9 a.m., then try that. Nothing worse. Again, everybody's ready to go and you show up late. So what? that's what we do on our tours. And we don't order it. We say, how's everybody feel about an 8 a.m. start? Because uh, we want to beat the traffic out of the city. Or like the other day, we went whale watching. And it wasn't actually whale watching, Jim. It was whale petting. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was a gray whale. So the mother was... 50 feet long and weighed 40 tons. Mm -hmm. uh, she didn't tell me that. The, the capitano of the boat told us. Right. So it's this little dory, I would call it. It wasn't a very big boat. There were six of us and the capitano. And they give you a presentation at the beginning to say, they're going to come right up beside you, especially the babies, which are longer than the boat. And they're various, very curious creatures. Don't pet them in the eyeball or the blowhole. And it was unbelievable. That's the second time I've done it. And people can't believe still that it came right up and they could pet the whale. 
It's amazing. I mean, and, and we did tours for many, many years in British Columbia, the kayaking with killer whales. And uh, of course, you can't yeah. get close to like you're not allowed to to get close right. to the killer whales. As a matter of fact, the rules even changed as the years right. went on. To you not only had to uh, at first we just had to avoid trying to cut them off or anything like that. But but then it yes. got so that if they they swam towards you, you'd have to move. They actually wanted you to back paddle to get out of the way of the whales. We had right. close encounters, and sometimes you just can't help it. But um, nothing with uh, nothing with touching. Certainly not touching the the humpbacks. That, that would be a no no. Like absolutely, you know, no. Yeah. Way, no way at all. So it's amazing to do it. But the whales don't they don't seem to mind it though. They loved it. And we were very respectful. The Capitano would shut the engine off and you float. They come to you. We don't chase them. You're not allowed to. And there's only a certain area of the uh, ocean where we were allowed to be, and only a certain number of boats oh, at I one see. time. Mm-hmm. So you're only allowed out there for 90 minutes mm-hmm. to appreciate that but we had to get up at 5 a.m kick stands up at 6 a.m in order to ride to the area where the whales were so it was quite a ride and so we were given the option you don't want to get up at five o'clock then you can stay and just ride around here we'll see you for dinner but everybody came and that was a highlight of the trip Mm, wow that's that's interesting. Now, of course, the whale thing doesn't apply to what we were talking about. I know we got sidetracked there, yeah. but, but it's interesting just the same. So um, yeah. that's that's a that's a great tip. No, that is perfect. I hadn't thought of that. Prepare yourself before you go. I mean, and 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 I know I, we've all been in that situation where we're waiting for someone else, or where they you go to get on their bike and and they decide they've got to do some other you know process that you have to sit and wait for. It drives you nuts. And with a group, it, yeah. it gets even worse. So so what about the group itself though? Uh, is is there something like is there any sort of assessment that you would do if you're coming up to ride? with the group or how would you handle it yeah and that's a tough thing because just you'll ask a lady rider a female rider so how would you rate your riding skills oh i'm generalizing but most women will underestimate their riding ability and i i can think specifically about this lady shirley who's on our ride she rides better than half of the male people in the group Mm-hmm. But she'll downplay her skills. Oh, no, I don't think I could do that. She did the sand with some help now and again, but she did get her bike through that nightmare. And so men sometimes will exaggerate their abilities. No, so, stop. <laughs> that's, that's not true. <laughs> so our eagle will often answer the questionnaire of how would you rate, are you an advanced rider? So some people interpret that, you know what, I used to road race. So yeah, I guess I'm an advanced rider. But the only time they've ever done any dirt is when the odd time they went off the track. They haven't ridden sand, rocks, hills, mud. So the first day we kind of assess how people are doing. And that's one of my rules is to diplomatically say, have you ever tried uh, standing up on your bike? Stuff like that. Mm. So I can do some instructional components if required. But it is very hard. One thing we do say is ride your own ride. You don't have to race to keep up to anybody. You don't even have to keep up. Dinner's at 7. Here's the GPS coordinates and a map. If you don't want to ride with the group, you don't have to. The only request is you never ride alone, even if it's road riding. And if you stick to the prescribed route that you're given, 
I and a chase truck are eventually going to come up. So if you have any issues, but if you wander off and say, you know what, I'm going to go to the other side of the peninsula, I can't help you. And neither can the sweep truck. So uh, applying that thought process of somebody even going out riding just with a, a semi-organized uh, group, you know, just something where you're meeting people, the, the, the key takeaway, I think, from that is to know where you're going or at least have some sort of, some way to figure out where you're Absolutely. going or how you're going to get back. That way you're not yeah. stuck blindly following people through somewhere because you're so worried about being left alone. Exactly. And when we were describing this on the night before the trip, we said, you know, we've got to go through some cities, especially in Arizona, to get to the border. You're not going to get 16 bikes through a lighted intersection. The light's going to turn red. Uh, One of the participants said, well, what we do is everybody just trains through. You just go through. I'm thinking, like heck, we're going to do that. Not only are you breaking the law, that's a good way to get killed. Mm-hmm. So observe all the traffic signals, even though I think perhaps Alto, which is on the stop signs here, means eh, slow down a little and look. <laughs> it, the right. interpretation might be that. My Spanish isn't that good. Right, right, right. That makes sense. In that sense, if you think, well, I'm doing a full stop, you better shoulder check first because perhaps locals aren't expecting some nut to stop fully. Whoever sets up a group ride needs to be quite a good organizer, really, because they need to do things to keep the group together and keep the group spaced out. And But you as a rider should understand this as well, so you don't get caught up in some of that. So can you talk a bit about riding with the group as far as spacing goes? Yeah, I think the lead rider is going to be pretty experienced in group riding. So the slingshot effect happens. If you take off in front of me and I'm still at the stoplight to maintain the same spacing, I got to really accelerate off that light to catch up to you. Now you decelerate, Jim. I've got to get on the brakes harder. So it's very, very scary if people don't know group riding dynamics and anticipate that it's okay if it's a long road i'm gonna catch up but the group rider if no one else knows where they're going has to find a safe place to pull over the number of people behind them you just can't pull over on the side of a busy road you got to turn into a commercial business with a big parking lot that has a safe exit and entrance that type of thing mm-hmm But educate people in advance saying, don't panic if you lose sight of the person in front of you. Just keep going the direction you were. And if there was a corner involved, the lead rider's role is to pull over and wait for everybody. Right. But again, as if you're a participant in a group ride, you have to anticipate the flow, the speed, the stopping, starting might be different than if you were just riding by yourself. Mm-hmm. But you have to almost accept that it's going to be different because you probably couldn't afford to come down here and have your bike shipped for the same amount of money as one person and have a lead and a sweep and a support truck. Mm-hmm. So there's compromises we make if you're riding with a group. 
Yeah, that in particular with the, the setup that you're on right now, because that's what they've done, right? They're they're paying to have their bike shipped down there, and and it's, it's they're taken down and they fly down as you'd said and grab their bikes. There's a huge huge advantage to that, obviously, of not having to ride the entire distance. Not to mention you're leaving in wintertime if you're, you're leaving from your place. Exactly. I couldn't have ridden the first few northern states. Right. And and there's a big snowstorm at my house this morning. My wife said, "So yeah, it'd be crazy." Yeah. Yeah, so that so that makes a lot of sense, and that can be worth it. But what you give up with that is is sort of your autonomy, I guess, or some some of it anyway. Yes, yeah, I think, it, and that patience has to come in. Right. Maybe uh, there's people involved that aren't your age; they're a little bit older. Uh, we've got this fantastic gentleman, Sten, retired Air Canada pilot, extremely experienced rider. But his approach to his motorcycle is, I'm assuming, his professional approach to an aircraft. He checks that thing over religiously, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he looks at me as kind of a mechanical guy. So, Clinton, I'd love your advice on this. What do you think about my chain tension? Uh, could we go over what you think is the proper tire pressure? And it's very methodical. Might not be as fast as I would do it, but um, that's the kind of rider I want to ride with. Some other people, they put gas in their bike, park it at the end of the day, and don't even look at it till the next morning. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're doing some rough, bumpy roads. I think you should check your bike a lot. Yeah, that would make sense. Wow, that sounds wild in there now. Yeah. <laughs> There's a... Uh, I don't think it's a party, but it's, yeah, sorry for all the background. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Uh, it's the only place where you can, the wife, I was going to say, it's the yeah. only place you can get Wi-Fi, right? So, yes, it is. But, we can all be a little bit more proactive to the check, I think. Because mm-hmm. um, what I have found is often we'll get up in the morning on these tours and there's a flat tire. Well, it probably wow. was on its way flat the night before, but nobody checked it. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to encourage people, take a good look before you go to your motel room or set up your tent. Take two minutes and go over your bike. You see any fluid leaks? Is there anything stuck in the tire? Uh, I pulled cactuses out of the front tire uh, the other day, and there was a slow leak. I also used tweezers and pulled them out of a poor guy named Brent, who crashed, landed on a cactus, oh. and his leg was itchy. And the next morning, he goes, oh, my God, there's a cactus thing stuck in my leg. So I got the tweezers out, rubbing alcohol, and, and we fixed them up. To apply what you were saying there about the, the group, about giving up some of your autonomy to the group, that's something, I guess, to keep in mind if you are joining a group. That, you you know, the advantage is you're going to have fun with a bunch of other people, but you do have to figure it. You're going to have to change your, your riding style, maybe match somebody else's pace, or, I mean, I guess you break it off and call it a day. Yes. And a lot of organizations will, for instance, the company I come down with, Dual Sport Plus, They'll transport the bike. They give you the route, GPS coordinates, a physical map, because I still love having a physical map with me. I had issues with GPS as I'm riding along wondering where the turn is, and it says acquiring satellites. (laughs) That's not going to help me. Yeah, that's right. I can usually find the map in my tank bag on the top, but I think 
that's a valid point that if like you're going to Europe on an Edelweiss tour, maybe you were a road racer and you're going to want to go way faster than the group leader. You can't really do it in a group. Mm -hmm. So there's some sacrifice, but I think it's worth it for just the camaraderie. I would far rather ride with uh, my wife or with a couple of other bikes than just go solo. Yeah. Yeah, and and certainly the the trail that you were on now, or that that road that you took that was so bad. I mean, obviously that's not something you want to do on your own either. No, that that's a that could be very serious, very dangerous. Are there any safety things you can think of to keep in mind while you're riding with a, a group, in particular if it's not an organizer, or a, like a commercially organized group? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some people who have ridden only by themselves might not know safety group suggestions for instance riding in a staggered formation uh, what do you do if you don't make the light that type of thing so that's something that we all go over and discuss and agree on to make sure everybody's on the same page okay well why don't you cover some of those things like for instance the staggered formation yeah. and stopping sure yeah the lead riders usually if we're on you know this side of the world where we ride on the right side of roads the lead riders usually in the left type track the second bike is one second at least in a staggered formation. They're behind them in the right tire track. Third riders behind the lead rider, two or three seconds in the left tire track. So there's always space. I really like being a little bit further behind to avoid that slingshot occurrence under hard deceleration. Because if you're only one second behind me or two seconds behind me, can you stop in the distance required in an emergency? A car cuts you off. So sadly, group rides can be catastrophic if a car, for instance, comes over the center line into the group of riders because they're so tightly packed. There's less maneuverability. So I've always suggested, you know, you can see them if they're a couple seconds away. You don't need to be right on their back fender and um, an etiquette thing is you never ever pass another rider on the throttle side of their motorcycle if you're on the right hand side of the road because they'll hear an engine coming up and instinctively you look over your left shoulder and that's extremely scary when they pass you on your brakes like your right hand side Mm -hmm. Uh, so um, I talk about that as well because that's, uh, I think it's a cardinal sin of riding in a group because that'll scare the hell out of someone and that could yeah. cause a crash. Yeah. So um, what, what about, like when you mentioned about preparing yourself, getting yourself like your fuel up and, and your water and everything before you go. Uh, what about your own gear? Yeah, that's, well, I think most people at this level, they're pretty experienced motorcyclists. So seldom do I show up on these events and people don't have proper boots or a couple of people may be overdressed in the thickness of their pants and jacket for the temperature we're in. I would recommend those breathe-through style gear. It's got armor, spine protector, elbow pads, shoulder pads, that type of thing. But the wind as you're riding comes through it. But what's critically important is you don't want to just put your jacket bungee corded to the back of the seat so it protects the seat in the event of a fall. 
because you ride down here in Baja in really hot days. As you're riding along with just a t-shirt on, the sun is dehydrating you. It'll feel cooler because there's air movement, but it's sapping away the moisture content in your body. And that can lead to, we, the last time we were down here, a gentleman passed out from it. And that caused a crash. Oh, well, he was riding. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So a little first aid, fixed the bike, lots of hydration. But I believe, I'm no doctor, but I think he was close to heat stroke because he was a basket case the next day. So you can't leave him behind. So that impeded the entire group just because he didn't ride with his jacket on and hydrate enough. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I do, I've only used it in Baja. I can send you a picture of it. I bought this thing at a bike show once. It's called um, Hot chill, Cold Chili or something. And what it is, is it's like a chamois. You soak it in cold water and then wrap it around your neck. And that, once you get riding, it stays cool for about four hours. Yesterday I used it. And then you rehydrate it and wrap it around your neck. It's fantastic for keeping the body cool. Is this the Frog Togs chili pad yeah, you sent me a photo it. of? Okay. Yeah, right. frog, we'll, frog Togs, that's right. the we'll, one. We'll put that in the in the show notes. We'll put a picture of that in the, in the show notes. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. That That's just like a moisture absorbent towel then. Unbelievable. It looks like a chamois. I think it's very similar construction. Yeah. And it just wrap it around your neck. It's huge. So it can go down into your jacket all the way up to almost your ears under your helmet. Mm -hmm. And then as you're riding, uh, the wind going through it moisturizes and cools you. It was phenomenal yeah, yesterday. Yeah. Makes sense. Wow. What, what other sort of personal tools or equipment would you have? Well, I think if you're on any kind of motorcycle, you should have a tire gauge with you. How much is the cheapest tire gauge? Is it seven dollars or something? It's cheap. If not, it's every morning because I hey, have you checked your bike over? Oh, Clint, can I buy your tire gauge? So I couldn't find it when I needed it to <laughs> a tire this morning because someone hadn't brought it back. Little things like that. You should know your tire pressure. It's your bike. Read the owner's manual a little. Um, but we've been on tours where people don't know where their battery is in their own motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a big deal, but it's not a car that you can just jump in, turn the key, go and take it in every 40,000 kilometers for tuna. I think you're, a, you're more likely to have success in riding if you know a bit about the mechanics of the bike. You don't have to set your own valves, but you should recognize tire age and wear pressure where the oil goes how to check it stuff like that and Basics. that's a, that's another point just because you said that one of the advantages of riding with a group is that if you don't have all the knowledge when you go out with a group you mix in with people everybody's got something to offer i mean with with your group there i'm sure everybody's got something to offer when something goes wrong and the odd time for instance that gentleman who gave the leather shoelace trick for a fried clutch Never heard of that in all my years of riding. Right. Yeah. But I've got that I've got that trick up my sleeve now. I'm gonna pack a leather shoelace or boot lace in my bag of goodies that I take with me. Because if you get into really ugly sand or very, very steep hills at slow speeds, Colorado stuff, could happen again. A clutch could fry. 
-hmm. and then I could fix it. The counter of what you just said made me giggle because there's not much else to do after dinner on these trips because you're not at home. You want to mingle with the fellow riders. So usually if there's 16 people, there's 12 assistants that I have when I'm doing <laughs> repairs. Yeah, I know how that I goes. Felt like my father, you're in my light. Yeah. <laughs> you just stepped on my hand. <laughs> you're in and my light. Well wow. I know that so well. Yeah. I think many of us, that brings a flashback. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but uh, I have to bite my lips sometimes when someone's advising me, you know, how to break the bead on the tire and put a tube in. If you own a dirt bike school and have been riding for 50 years, you've probably done a few. You've done three or four of them on your own. Yeah. Right. So I, I smile. You know, they're, they're well-meaning, but I'll say, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to try it this way. See how it works. Well, if it doesn't work, I'm going to try it your way. This, this is true. I mean, th that is the other side, isn't it? Is that, is that sometimes you can have too many people oh, in yeah. charge here, think they are in charge or, or think they have the knowledge. That's true. But um, that's the chance you take. But certainly for a rider with very little knowledge, it could be a, an advantage oh. to have other people there without a doubt. It's awesome. There's somebody on these trips who's got good first aid, some mechanical support. We're carrying oil, cables, tires, tubes, chains, because we have a sweep truck. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood of you getting home with your own bike safe and sound goes up in an organized, organized tour. Um, a bunch of buddies of mine went to way up north in Quebec, there's a hydroelectric plant in James Bay, and it's one of those mecca adventure rides. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's paved yet, but it's a pretty tough ride. And a buddy of mine, BMW, tubeless front wheel, smoked the rim on a rock. I think it was the second day. They had to have a truck drive halfway across Canada, basically up north, to pick this bike up. And... He was in the truck for the ride home. And mm. if he'd had somebody with a bit more experience, they would have put a tube in that, taken the valve stem out of the tubeless tire. I've done it at least 20 times on big adventure bikes. Now, the manufacturer would recommend not to do it or not to ride if the wheel, the rim is really bent. But we, did, we just did it this morning finished a KTM that had a heck of a wow in it. And what we did is we borrowed a blowtorch from one of the maintenance people at the resort, heated up the rim, and then a new trick I learned. I was just using a hammer or a rock. What another gentleman suggested is take an adjustable wrench, which luckily I had a metric adjustable wrench, Jim. I don't know if you have one of those. No, I, I can't afford that stuff. <laughs> okay, well, I had a metric one, and I tightened the jaws. Or actually, Tim did it, uh, one of the Mexican support fellows, great guy. He tightened the jaws and then just bent the wow, the bent rim, bent it back flat. I'm I'm pretty convinced that if there was a good liner around the spokes we wouldn't have had to put a tube in it but we didn't want to risk it so i pulled the valve stem put a tube in 
and Quinto right What you're saying is you, you close the jaws down on the adjustable wrench until that you just catch it on the rim and then you're yes. on, the, on the lip of the rim and then you're bending the edge of the rim down. That I've done that exact method on my bike before. Matter of fact, it's the only thing that I found that gave enough leverage so that I could yes. bend it down because the rims are so hard. Um, yeah. and, and they resist. But the problem with that is it really concentrates the bend in a small area. You're only bending like, well, maybe two inches sort of at, yes. at a time. So you have to go yeah. a little bit and then work your way around and do a little bit and then come back. You don't want to do it all at once. That's what we did. Yeah. Yes. Don't be in a hurry. No. And no. some heat really helped. If we couldn't find a blowtorch, I had some tin foil. I was going to wrap it around um, the bent part of the rim and hold it against the header pipe of my exhaust. Wow, that's thinking. Because <laughs> I didn't want the paint on this brand new bike's header pipe, but there's enough heat there if I left it idle for a while. Mm -hmm. I think that would have, I don't know, it's not as good as a blowtorch, but well, I was going to try it. And of course the torch, I mean, you may have just totally messed with the, the hardening for the rim. I mean, likely you did. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that rim's toast. Yeah. Clint's going to, but it'll get him home. That's but it's, it's getting out, and, yeah. And it's completely safe. He tested it. There's no bounce up and down, vibration or wobble. That's how good a job Tim did with the heat and the metric adjustable wrench. Mm -hmm. What other tips do you have for, for riding with a group? Um, fuel, of course. You may not have the same fuel economy as the GSA or the Africa Twin Super Adventure, you know, 30 liter tanks that can go 600 kilometers, 400 miles. Mm -hmm. The bike I rode this week is a Yamaha Tenere 700. And I, I haven't had it all the way. It's been flashing. I'm told by the other four T7 riders on this event that you can get 300 kilometers and then you better hope there's a gas station coming up. Ooh, that's so not far. I, I didn't worry about it because I carry... Uh, you know, that special credit card, the siphon hose. <laughs> right. I carry one of those and there's always a big tank bike. That's what like I was going to say. The, if, you, if you're using the siphon hose, then you have to ride with somebody with a bigger tank than yours. That's right. <laughs> They're like the big plane that refuels the little plane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, if I was going to tour the whole time on that bike, I would get uh, an additional tank or carry packs or a gas bag, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Giant but, Loop has those gas bags now that yeah. they collapse down and roll up. And the, I think that's a great way to do it. The plastic containers, which is what I have, you're, you're obligated to carry it whether it's empty or full. It's this bulky yes. sort of thing, whereas the bag, you just roll it up when you're not using it. So whatever section yeah. of the adventure you need it, you unroll it and fill it up. Brilliant. And so, but if you've got a bike that doesn't have the fuel range of the others, you've got to be cognizant of gassing up. I, down here, I'm gassing up pretty well every gas station I go by because I don't want to be that guy that runs out. Yeah. Because I, I don't have a sweep rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so little things like that are very important. Um, I always carry some snacks with me as, as well as lots of water because long, long days and heat, your energy level dives down so... Um, we tell people, if you don't feel good, pull over. And we've got a sweep truck. We can put your bike in the back. You can ride as a passenger. You don't have to slug it out and keep going. Mm -hmm. But often, 
uh, pull over at a nice safe spot, take some pictures, have something to drink, maybe a little snack, and that rejuvenates you. And it lets your dead rear end revitalize a little bit because the uh, some bikes, I'm not sure if the seat is balsa or pine, but some of them aren't as comfortable as others. Right. How is, so, how is yours? Uh, I think it's balsa. Mm. So it is, they do market a custom seat for that bike, but the seat I have on its stock motivates one to stand up quite a bit. <laughs> well, that's good. But, but I brought an Airhawk. You've seen those, Jim? It's yeah, inflated. I've never tried one before, though. Fantastic. It saved my life this week. So you just put a little bit of air. Everybody puts too much on. So it's an inflatable bladder in this pad, and it straps onto the seat where the rider goes. They have them for passengers as well. So you're sitting on a cushion of air. So you would think lots of air is good. That's what everybody does. But it's like sitting on a waterbed. You give it gas and you roll back, you slow down, you roll forward. So most people end up practicing and testing the best. And there's a valve stem that you can release air with your clutch hand. And so I now have enough that just the two big bones in your butt are supported by air. And if you have more than that, it doesn't really improve the comfort. Hmm. You don't find that thing sweaty at all? No, oh, no, it was fine. Uh, some of them will come with an air mesh seat. There's a couple people on the trip that have added an optional air mesh, air mesh cover, and they say it helps, but I've never tried one of those. Hmm. I stand up, I get off a walk around, because um, I'm not really into the iron butt, you know, 1,600 kilometers, six, or 1,000 mile days. I'm way too old for that stuff. <laughs> So our tours, we organize the longest day will be 500 kilometers. That's a pretty good haul. Yes. And the average day is 250 to 300 kilometers. Right. So with the way you guys are doing the trip, so you, do does the rider have the option to not take the route? Like for if somebody yeah. didn't want to take that route that you took that was very difficult, is there an option for them to go so, do something else? Absolutely. One smart gentleman, Sten, said, you know what? I don't really feel like doing off-road. I'm just going to go around. So Tim, one of our Mexican support workers, has an Africa twin. He happily did a beautiful paved ride and got to the hotel eh, probably about eight hours before the rest of us straggled <laughs> in. And wondered what happened to everyone. <laughs> yeah, so a good route, for instance, the organizers of the BDR, the creators of the Backcountry Discovery, most of them put an optional opt-out route where you can do pavement to the destination that the hard off-road will do. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we always try to organize is optional routes. I'm looking at your list and, and see something called the buddy system. What is that? Oh, we think, you know, if you and I were going out riding, you're the far faster because you come from out west. They're all crazy, those wires. <laughs> yeah, right. So you're leading... We think if you're riding with two bikes or three or four, the person behind you is your buddy. And in a sense, you're a little bit responsible to keep together. So 
it might mean setting a pace that is comfortable for that person, not too slow, certainly not too fast. If you don't see them in your mirror, have they crashed or are they just a little slower than you? So that takes some time to figure that out. Mm -hmm. What I do when I'm leading, so when I'm teaching, I'm always leading or usually leading. I stand up an awful lot because we're in off-road school. So I would lift, elevate the angle of my left mirror up. So when standing, it's a very quick glance to the left to see if I see a headlight or smiling teeth behind me. Mm -hmm. Sitting down, uh, my right mirror shows me. And then once I'm back on a road, I just tilt my left mirror back down so it's perfect for a sitting position look in the mirror so that's very important mm -hmm. but the the buddy system is also what we teach you are right out riding with friends and you look they're not behind you don't turn around and race back worried this happens with family members or possibly um, spouses or really close friends they're worried about the person behind them who might be less experienced and there's been accidents on corners where I fall and I pick my bike up. Now I'm stressed. Oh, my God, Jim is so far ahead of me. I better race now and catch up. You're worried because you don't want to explain to my wife where I am. <laughs> so you're charging back. That combination could be ugly on a corner. So what we say is if your rider behind you isn't there pull over to the right wait a minute maybe two minutes maybe not two wait one minute then go back slowly and hug the right hand side of that trailer road especially if it's twisty mm -hmm. you don't want to be hanging it out on the left or the middle of the trail if that's where you meet up if you're the person that's fallen you're on an enduro bike an adventure bike you have an SOS beeping the horn long, short, long means, Hey, Jim, I've fallen. I can't get this bike off my leg. I need help. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, as soon as you fall, there might be a likelihood of you hearing it and coming back. I used it myself in Colorado. I dropped my bike in the sand. I couldn't pick it up. And a young guy, yeah, this young guy came charging back and I hadn't even said one, two, three. He lifted it up with me on the bike almost. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of the buddy system is just signaling, letting people know. So once we got my friend Sev almost the way out, the trail was rocky, but it was doable. So he probably rode his own bike out, maybe 20K towards the end. I led, and what I would do is I picked the line. If I saw it sandy in the right, I put my left turn signal on, even though we're out in the trail. That meant, follow me, buddy, we're going left. Don't go to the right. And there was lots of washout, very steep gullies that we navigated. I picked the optimal line, used the turn signal, or hello, this is really ugly, I put my four-way flashers on. And that just gave Sev an idea where to go and to slow down and prepare for 
it's maybe front brake used for that hard, short downhill, stuff like that. When you come to a difficult section where, where you've got, let's say you come up to mud or sand or whatever it is, what's your protocol for going through it? Do you have one person wait for the first person to go through or how does that work? Well, you know what I always say, Jim? Let, Let your, your friend, friend go, go first. first. <laughs> but in this case, I was the friend because um, Sev was done physically, mentally. He did not want to ride anymore. And we had to get him out of there. He was exhausted. So um, in a couple spots where I thought, you know what? This looks too ugly. I hope Sev won't mind, but I'll stop. Leave my bike here and I'll take either him and his bike. Or a couple times he walked it and I took his bike. And then he walked to his and I came back. But a little communication and that whole buddy system, you don't want to leave anybody behind. So the buddy system is really important. And if you're riding solo, I think you better have a spot meter or an in-reach, some device that you can get helped before the coyotes or the grizzly come. Ideally, yes. That's, that's, that's a very yeah. good point. Very good point. Anything else? Well, I'm, I'm real big on that buddy system. That's critically important because I've been the guy stranded in the back thinking, where's my buddies? Mm-hmm. They're back at the truck having a root beer. But I really am, uh, think that people have to adopt a patient attitude um, when you're traveling with others who will have varying levels of interests, fuel range, riding skill, likes and dislikes. It, to me, it's fantastic to travel somewhere where the accents are different, the customs are different, and the people that you meet. That's the best part of adventure riding for me is going somewhere different. Even as a Canadian, going to Quebec is almost like a different country. It's fantastic the different uh, people you'll meet. And I can't speak Spanish. I pretend. But <laughs> sign language, a big smile. You know, you do some pantomime charades and you can get by. But that's the best part of it. Um, most of the people on this trip said they can't believe how friendly people are and how happy they seem. And that's a message that they took. And I certainly believe you don't have to have a lot of monetary wealth or acquisitions to have fun. I spoke to a gentleman the other day. He has a life sand, it's called, which is a little bike. It looks like a Honda, but the engine's Chinese. And he was so proud of it. It was so polished up. And we were talking motorcycles. He had a grin ear to ear. Mm-hmm. And he was admiring all of our bikes. But I don't think I'm having any more fun than that guy was. Oh, yeah. Clinton, that's great. I mean, you know, and it's great to talk to you in the middle of all of this and all the noise and action going on behind you. Yeah, just, sorry about that. No, it's great. It just it really gives you a feel for what you're experiencing now. You enjoy the rest of this work holiday. I sure will. A few more days, but I think I'm going to sneak outside to see if I can have some of the birthday cake. It looks amazing. Take care, Clinton. Thanks very much. <laughs> all the best, Jim. Bye-bye.
I was speaking with Clinton Smout in Baja, Mexico. Clinton is the head instructor for Smart Adventures, motorcycle rider training in Ontario, Canada. You've probably heard Clinton on our Rider Skills episode if you listen to Adventure Rider Radio much. His website is smartadventures.ca. And if you're curious about the sand trap that Clinton was riding, the one he talked about, the ride to hell, we've got a few videos the kind folks that were on this trip sent to us placed in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course you for being a part of it by listening to the show. Hey, if you um, if you have friends that ride and may benefit or, or enjoy what you're listening to right now, spread the word. Post it on social media. Let other people know about it. it certainly helps that way. The other way you can help is by giving us a five-star review. Well, you can do whatever star you want, but I'm hoping it's going to be a five-star a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. iTunes, Podbean, wherever it is. Just give us a five star because that lets other people find the show. So it makes it a little bit easier. And the final thing that I would like to mention is that the show is built on a model of listener support and advertising. Don't sit back thinking that everybody else is doing it because really they're not. Everybody else is not doing it. We have some great supporters. We really do. There are some wonderful people that support the show and it it makes the difference. It makes it happen, really. Uh, If you're not one of them, maybe you'll consider it. I would really hope you would. Drop our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now we have another show that we do. comes out once a month, Adventure Rider Radio Raw. The latest episode is out just a week or so ago, I think now. And uh, it comes out every month. It's a a separate show, so you have to find it as, as a separate feed where you're finding podcasts. All that information is available at, at our website, adventureriderradio.com, uh, as everything else, all the shows, all the episodes that we do. So drop by the website, have a look. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I hope you can. My name is Jim Martin, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>